And we come tonight to the second chapter of two in the book of Leviticus, which are connected with the subject of leprosy. Chapter 13, if you were with us a few weeks ago, dealt with the diagnosis of leprosy in a person or garment. And here tonight in chapter 14, we'll see how the Lord prescribes the manner in which the one who had been healed of leprosy was to be cleansed and to be reinstated into the community of God's people. And we'll also see, Lord willing, in the latter portion of the chapter, the, the law for the cleansing of a leprous house. Now, for starters, before we look to the text, I want to keep a couple of things in mind uh, that, we, uh, that we saw when we were looking at chapter 13 a couple of weeks ago. One is that when we read of leprosy here in our English translations, we shouldn't be thinking of the skin disease that probably first comes into our minds which is a disease known as, known as Hansen's disease, which uh, basically kind of kills off the, the nerves in the extremities of your bodies. And so uh, you touch something hot, you don't feel it, and uh, you burn your skin severely, and your body deforms because of it. That's Hansen's disease. It seems like that the, the term leprosy here that we find in Leviticus 13 and 14, and that we see elsewhere in the, in the Old Testament and even in the, in the Gospels in respect to Christ's miracles, that this is a, a much more broad reference to things that encapsulates a, a number of different skin diseases. And as we see in the latter portions of chapter 13 and chapter 14, even can extend seemingly to, to mold or mildew or something of that respect. And uh, again, as we saw a few weeks ago, one commentator translated uh, the word that we often see as leprosy, translated it as scaly skin disease, and so can cover uh, can cover a number of things. And second thing to keep in mind is what we saw in regard to the priests, and we'll see this we'll see this more tonight. Uh, that the priests in chapter thirteen and fourteen simply diagnose. Uh, their function is diagnostic. They diagnose the persons and the objects as clean or unclean. The priests did not heal the infection of the one who was infected. Rather, they made a pronouncement of what was the case, whether the person was clean, whether they had never been infected, um, whether they, uh, in which case, if they were infected, they had to live outside of the camp. And the priest also could observe and diagnose whether or not the person had been healed, whether the person was clean. And if the person was healed, what we see tonight in chapter 14 is the priest participating and leading this ritual by which the healed person then would be pronounced clean by the priest. The priest could offer the sacrifice, he could perform the ritual, pronounce the person clean, but he did not heal the person. That was not within the purview of the Old Testament priesthood. And so let's, let's look to the text, Leviticus 14, it is a... Uh, rather long chapter, and so we'll proceed in a manner similar to what we did last time where we uh, read a, a chunk of the text and then try to work out and make sense of what's going on in that passage and, uh, and so on, and then we'll try to come around at the end and draw out uh, a few, few points of application at the end. So first of all, let's, let's look to uh, Leviticus 14, verses 1 through 9. Moses writes under the inspiration of the Spirit, and this is what we read. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, This shall be the law of the leper in the day of his cleansing. Now he shall be brought to the priest, and the priest shall go out to the outside of the camp. Thus the priest shall look, and if the infection of the leprosy 
has been healed in the leper, then the priest shall give orders to take two live, clean birds and cedar wood and a scarlet string and hyssop for the one who is to be cleansed. The priest shall give orders to slay the one bird in an earthenware vessel over running water. As for the live bird, he shall take it together with the cedar wood and the scarlet string and the hyssop and shall dip them and the live bird in the blood of the bird that was slain over the running water. He shall then sprinkle seven times the one who is to be cleansed from the leprosy and shall pronounce him clean and shall let the live bird go free over the open field. The one to be cleansed then shall wash his clothes, shave off all his hair and bathe in water and be clean. Now afterward he may enter the camp, but he shall stay outside his tent for seven days. It will be on the seventh day that he shall shave off all his hair. He shall shave his head and his beard and his eyebrows, even all his hair. He shall then wash his clothes and bathe his body in water and be clean. Now these opening verses obviously describe the procedure for cleansing the one who had been infected, who had been healed. The infection person has, according to the law of chapter 13, verse 46, has been living outside of the camp. And thus, even in the beginning of the process, notice how according to verse 3, the priest is to go outside the camp to the leper to see if he has been healed. The leper wasn't simply allowed to say, I'm all better. I'm going back home now. I'm going back to the tabernacle to worship. It didn't, didn't work that way. There was an inspection by the priest. There was a ceremonial process that must be followed. And so the priest went outside the camp to inspect the situation. If indeed the person had been healed, then the first step of reinstatement was to be taken before the person could even come back into the camp of Israel. Two live, clean birds must be brought, along with cedar wood, with scarlet string, and hyssop for this one who was to be cleansed, as we see in verse 4. The one bird is to be slain over running water or living water in an earthen vessel, and the idea seems to be that you have a, a, a pottery vessel of some sort into which running water has been, has been placed, and so this is called the, the living water or the running water, and then this first bird then is slain over that, and the blood of the bird goes down into the vessel and mixes with the water. And then according to verse 6, this live bird, along with the cedar wood and scarlet string and hyssop, are to be dipped into this earthen vessel, which at this point now contains this, this mixture of both blood and water. And the idea seems to be, perhaps, that the wood, the hyssop, and the scarlet string are all uh, bound together and all dipped together into the earthen vessel and then lifted back out, now having the blood on them. And this blood then is used to sprinkle seven times on the one who was to be cleansed. And after he was sprinkled, he was pronounced clean. That live bird who had been dipped in the blood and the water is now allowed to fly free over the open field. This seems perhaps to be an emblem of the freedom which was to come to this person who had been confined outside of the camp. But now he's in the process of being reinstated into the community of the people of God, reinstated into the, the worship of God at the tabernacle. And he is now getting a greater degree of his personal freedoms back. And while we're here, 
we should notice the similarity between the ritual here and the ritual for the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16. If you were here uh, this morning uh, in Sunday school, our brother Jeff was talking a little bit about that. And then we should also notice the similarity between the ritual here and between the uh, the ritual for the case of the person who came into contact with a corpse in Numbers 19. Now, the similarity between what we see here in Leviticus 14 and the Day of Atonement and Leviticus 16 is that in both cases there are two animals, right? There's one that gets sacrificed. There's a goat on the Day of Atonement. And there's this first of the live, clean birds here that gets sacrificed. And then in both cases there's one that gets released. In this case, the bird is uh, allowed to fly free. And difference being in Leviticus 16, you have the, the scapegoat or the, the goat uh, for Azazel, depending on how you would prefer to translate it. Um, anyways, the sins of the people are confessed over that goat, and then that goat is sent out into the wilderness. And similar to the ritual found in, in Numbers 19 is that in both cases you have the use of the cedarwood, the hyssop, and the scarlet string, Numbers 19.6 specifies the usage of, of those things in the purification of the person who would come into contact with a corpse. And we see in verses 8 and 9 the, the gradual workings of this cleansing rite. According to verse 8, the person is to do three things, to wash his clothes, shave off all his hair, and bathe in water. After that, he's permitted to go into the camp, but not even into his own tent. He can go into the camp, but not into his tent, and certainly not into the presence of the Lord at the tabernacle. He stays outside of his tent for seven days, and then on the seventh day he is to do again those three things that he had done one week earlier. He's to wash his clothes, shave off his hair, and bathe his body in water and be cleansed. Now, let's look at what was to happen on the eighth day. Let's look at uh, verses 10 through 20. Now, on the eighth day, he is to take two male lambs without defect and a yearling ewe lamb without defect and three-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil for a grain offering and one log of oil. And the priest who pronounces him clean shall present the man to be cleansed and the aforesaid before the Lord at the doorway of the tent of meeting. Then the priest shall take the one male lamb and bring it for a guilt offering with the log of oil, and present them as a wave offering before the Lord. Next, he shall slaughter the male lamb in the place where they slaughter the sin offering and the burnt offering at the place of the sanctuary. For the guilt offering, like the sin offering, belongs to the priest. It is most holy. The priest shall then take some of the blood of the guilt offering, and the priest shall put it on the lobe of the right ear of the one to be cleansed, on the thumb of his right hand, and on the big toe of his right foot. The priest shall also take some of the log of oil and pour it into his left palm. The priest shall then dip his right hand finger into the oil that is in his left palm, and with his finger sprinkle some of the oil seven times before the Lord. Of the remaining oil which is in his palm, the priest shall put some on the right ear lobe of the one who is to be cleansed, and on the thumb of his right hand, and on the big toe of his right foot, and on the, uh, on the blood of the guilt offering. While the rest of the oil that is in the priest's palm, he shall put on the head of the one to be cleansed. So the priest shall make atonement on his behalf before the Lord. The priest shall next offer the sin offering and make atonement for the one to be cleansed from his uncleanness. 
Then afterward he shall slaughter the burnt offering. The priest shall offer up the burnt offering and the grain offering on the altar. Thus the priest shall make atonement for him, and he will be clean. And so this eighth day here then is the day of sacrifice. The one being cleansed is to bring two male lambs without defect and a yearling ewe without defect, three-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil for the grain offering and what is here called a log of oil. A log of oil is said to be about half a pint, so about eight ounces of oil. The priest brings the person, presents him before the Lord at the doorway of the tent of meetings. One of those male lambs then is presented as a guilt offering. This uh, this male lamb is presented as a guilt offering, and the, the log of oil are presented as a wave offering before the Lord. And then, as we see there in verse 13, the lamb of the guilt offering is to be slain. It is most holy. It belongs to the priest. Now, at this point, one might well ask, why the guilt offering? Being sick is not a sin, so why the guilt offering? And to that, I would say, that's a good question. And it's difficult to know for sure. From what I've seen, there are, there are a couple of theories. One of those theories operates on the assumption that though the leprosy itself was not sinful, yet it was a consequence arising from sin. As such, there's a need for a guilt offering. Now, indeed, we saw several such examples of this uh, a couple of weeks ago in which leprosy was a direct punishment for a particular sin. We saw this in the case of Miriam. We saw it in the case of Jehazi. We saw it in the case of Uzziah in Second Chronicles 20. Now, the scripture is not entirely clear whether the leprosy discussed here in chapters 13 and 14 is always used in that fashion, always as a particular and direct Uh, punishment for some kind of sin, or whether one might be afflicted with this potentially without it being a direct consequence of a particular sin. So that's, that's one theory. The other possibility is that the guilt offering was to make atonement for whatever service to the Lord this afflicted person might have missed out on during the days of their affliction. And in a way, this, this kind of makes sense. If you think back to our discussion of the guilt offerings back in Leviticus 5 and 6, often the guilt offerings were given in a situation where there was a restitution to be made. The law specifies uh, back in Leviticus 5 and 6 that these guilt offerings were to be made uh, by someone who had acted unfaithfully in regard to the Lord's things or perhaps in regard to a to something that had been entrusted to them by someone else. And the idea here then, if the guilt offering is functioning in that way, is that this person in being cut off from the life of the covenant community and unable to bring their sacrifices to the Lord for however long they've been out there outside the camp and certainly away from the tabernacle, the reason would be then that they, they have this, this guilt offering to kind of, to kind of clear the air, to, to make up for whatever they missed out on, all of the, the sacrifices, tithes, offerings, and so forth that should have been brought during the time of their estrangement. This is a way of making up for lost time and sacrifices missed. Now, whatever the cause might be, one way or the other, or perhaps some third option, which has not at least presented itself to me, Um, Whatever the case might be, we have a prescription here for this guilt offering. But we should notice here that 
What we see in this sacrifice is different from the guilt offerings that we have seen before. And it's different in this way. In, the, in this case, the, the blood from this guilt offering is placed not simply on the altar or sprinkled before the Lord in some way. This blood from this guilt offering is placed on the person, on the lobe of their right ear, thumb of their right hand, big toe of their right foot. And, the, and then we have the, the issue of the oil, right? The, the priest sprinkles some of this oil seven times before the Lord, and then he goes back down through the body, anointing the right ear, the right thumb, and the right big toe of the one who was to be cleansed. And then the priest takes whatever oil is left over in the palm of his left hand and puts it on the head of this man who was to be cleansed. And this whole ceremony has remarkable similarities to the consecration of the high priest in Leviticus 8. There's anointing oil that's sprinkled seven times on the altar and placed on Aaron's head, Leviticus 8, verses 11 and 12. The blood of the ordination ram was placed on those parts of Aaron's body, his right ear lobe, right thumb, right big toe during the ordination. And this symbolism that we see here in chapter 14 in both the, the blood of the guilt offering and this, this oil being placed on, on these parts of his body seem perhaps to be indicative of the man's cleansing, that now he is cleansed so as to, to hear the word of God and cleansed to receive the things of God and cleansed so as to move about more freely with the ability to enter into God's presence at the doorway of the tent of meeting. And this anointing oil may perhaps indicate the consecration of the individual now to the Lord. Earlier they had been cut off from the camp and cut off from the tent of meeting. But now they are not only cleansed by the blood, but they have this anointing oil upon them that they are uh, could potentially indicate their consecration now to the Lord, that they can worship the Lord as they formerly did. We read there at the end of verse 18 these words, So the priest shall make atonement on his behalf before the Lord. And then verses 19 and 20 describe the sacrifice of the sin offering and the burnt offering along with the grain offering. And then we find at the end of verse 20, thus the priest shall make atonement for him and he will be clean. How wonderful would that news have been had you been a leper who was cut off from your people, cut off from your family, cut off from the worship of God, you're clean. You're free now to re-enter. Now let's look ahead to uh, the verses 21 through, through 32. But if he is poor and his means are insufficient, he is to take one male lamb for a guilt offering as a wave offering and make atonement for him, to make atonement for him, and one-tenth of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil for a grain offering and a log of oil and two turtle doves, or two young pigeons, which are within his means. The one shall be a sin offering, and the other a burnt offering. Now the eighth day he shall bring them for his cleansing to the priest at the doorway of the tent of meeting before the Lord. The priest shall take the lamb of the guilt offering and the log of oil, and the priest shall offer them for a wave offering before the Lord. Next he shall slaughter the lamb of the guilt offering, and the priest is to take some of the blood of the guilt offering and put it on the lobe of the right ear of the one who is to be cleansed and on the thumb of his right hand and on the big toe of his right foot. Then the priest shall also pour some of the oil into his left palm. And with his right hand finger, the priest shall sprinkle some of the oil that is in his left palm seven times before the Lord. 
The priest shall then put some of the oil that is in his palm on the lobe of the right ear of the one who is to be cleansed, and on the thumb of his right hand and on the big toe of his right foot, on the place of the blood of the guilt offering. Moreover, the rest of the oil that is in the priest's palm he is to put on the head of the one to be cleansed and to make atonement on his behalf before the Lord. He shall then offer one of the turtle doves or young pigeons with our, which are within his means. He shall offer what he can afford, the one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering, together with a grain offering. So the priest shall make atonement before the Lord on behalf of the one who is to be cleansed. This is the law for him in whom there is an infection of leprosy whose means are limited for his cleansing. Now, here we, as you can see, we have basically the, the same procedure of cleansing, though with cheaper animals and less grain for the sake of this poor man. As we've seen time and again in Leviticus, that the Lord takes into account the financial status of the worshiper and uh, has no desire to impoverish the poor with the price of sacrifice. And so in the case of this poor man, he is still supposed to bring the one male lamb for the guilt offering, though in the place of the other two lambs, he can bring two birds, either two turtle doves or two young pigeons for the sin offering, the burnt offering, respectively. The other difference in this case is... Uh, the requirement for the grain offering, that is decreased. It was three-tenths in the, the regular case mentioned above. It is only one-tenth of an ephah of fine flour here. Um, it's three-tenths back in verse 10, one-tenth here in verse 21. Aside from these substitutions, the ritual is, is basically the same. Now let's look, look down beginning in verse 33 uh, for the case of the cleansing of a leprous house. Let's look at 33 through 47. The Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, When you enter the land of Canaan, which I give you for a possession, and I put a mark of leprosy on a house in the land for your possession, then the one who owns the house shall come and tell the priest, saying, Something like a mark of leprosy has become visible to me in the house. The priest shall then command that they empty the house before the priest goes in to look at the mark, so that everything in the house need not become unclean. And afterward, the priest shall go in to look at the house. So he shall look at the mark. And if the mark on the walls of the house has greenish or reddish depressions, and it appears deeper than the surface, then the priest shall come out of the house to the doorway and quarantine the house for seven days. The priest shall return on the seventh day and make an inspection. If the mark has indeed spread in the walls of the house, then the priest shall order them tear out the stones with the mark in them and to throw them away at an unclean place outside the city. He shall have the house scraped all around inside and they shall dump the plaster that they scrape off at an unclean place outside the city. Then they shall take other stones and replace those stones and he shall take other plaster and replaster the house. If, however, the mark breaks out again in the house after he has torn out the stones and scraped the house and after it has been replastered, then the priest shall come in and make an inspection. If he sees that the mark has indeed spread in the house, it is a malignant mark in the house. It is unclean. He shall therefore tear down the house, its stones and its timbers, and all the plaster of the house, and he shall take them outside the city to an unclean place." Moreover, whoever goes into the house during that time he has quarantined it becomes unclean until evening. Likewise, whoever lies down 
in the house shall wash his clothes, and whoever eats in the house shall wash his clothes. Now, as we begin to look at this situation regarding a house, a leprous house, we should notice something right here from the get-go, and that is the way that the Lord describes what is going on here in verse 34. He says, When you enter the land of Canaan, which I give you for a possession, and I put a mark of leprosy on a house in the land of your possession. The Lord is, Lord is very open and clear that he's the one who is bringing about this state of affairs. This is not, this is not a freak accident. This is an intentional doing of the Lord. And this has uh, been historically uh, regarded uh, by the Jewish people as something that was supernatural and miraculous. The Jewish writers uh, reportedly said that such a situation was as if the beam of the house had cried out to the one who lived there, turn to the Lord thy God. When such a mark appeared, the priest is supposed to come to command that uh, the, the people who, who live there are supposed to empty the house of its contents so that if the house is declared unclean, that uh, everything else in the house does not become unclean as well. The priest then comes to inspect, and if the mark is, is deeper than the surface, then there's this order to quarantine for seven days. If the mark spreads, then the stones are to be torn out, and then they are to be uh, the plaster scraped off. They're to be replaced with other stones and other plaster. If the mark breaks out again the second time within the house, then it's over. Call in the demolition team. The house must be torn down and all of the stones taken away outside the city to an unclean place. Verses 46 and 47 describe the uncleanness of those who, who entered the house during that period or who lied down within the house during that quarantine and how they were to be cleansed again. Now, uh, let's look at what was to be done if, upon inspection, the, the mark had not spread in the house, the ordinance for the cleansing of the house. We find this in uh, verses uh, 48 through 53. If, on the other hand, the priest comes in, makes an inspection, and the mark has not indeed spread in the house after the house has been replastered, then the priest shall pronounce the house clean because the mark has not reappeared. To cleanse the house, then he shall take two birds and cedar wood and scarlet string and hyssop, and he shall slaughter the one bird and an earthenware vessel over running water. Then he shall take the cedar wood and the hyssop and the scarlet string with the live bird and dip them in the water of the slain bird as well as in the running water and sprinkle the house seven times. He shall thus cleanse the house with the blood of the bird and the running water along with the live bird and with the cedar wood and with the hyssop and the scarlet string. However, he shall let the live bird go free Outside the city, into the open field, he shall make atonement for the house, and it will be clean. And so, in short, after uh, the seven-day quarantine, which is prescribed in verse 38, if after that period the mark hasn't spread, the procedure for cleansing the house is essentially the same as the procedure for cleansing the leprous person, that procedure that was described in verses 1 through 7. You take the two live, clean birds, you sacrifice the one over living water in an earthenware vessel, and so on. And then the final verses of the chapter, 54 through 57, just round out this discussion of really both chapters 13 and 14. This is the law for the mark of leprosy, even for a scale, and for a leprous garment or house, and for a swelling, and for a scab, and for a bright spot, to teach when they are unclean 
and when they are clean. This is the law of leprosy. Now, having walked through this chapter, and I appreciate, again, your patience in in doing so, we need to think about what this law has to do with us. Obviously, we are not bound by these laws. These laws are part of the ceremonial law, and therefore, in some way, they point to Christ. Now, the sacrifices obviously point to Christ. The, the guilt offering, the sin offering, the burnt offering, those point to Christ. I would suggest and suspect that in the sacrifice of the two live clean birds, the one over, over the water and the one being let go, we have some, uh, some typology going on there. I would suspect the fact that we have this water catching the blood and then that being sprinkled upon the person or the place points us to to Christ, who came not by water only, but by water and blood. And Lord willing, as uh, we continue in John 19, we'll see the water and the blood, which flowed from Jesus' side there in 19. I think I would not be surprised if we're supposed to to learn something of uh, from, from this, this blood and water here that ultimately points us to Christ, who came not by water only, but by blood and water. And... We also uh, see that the work of the, the priest here points to Christ and is superseded by him, right? We noticed this a couple of weeks ago, that the priest's function is just diagnostic, but Christ has the ability to heal. No one could walk up to an Old Testament priest and say, if you want to, you can make me clean. But people could go up to Jesus and say, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus did indeed cleanse Lepers. Now, certainly there's probably more than I will say tonight, but tonight I want us to think about three things which, which arise from this chapter. One is the great change that came in the one who was cleansed. Second is the fact that the cleansing is recognized by the priest. And third is that the troubles that we face in this world should drive us to our priest our great high priest, Jesus Christ. So, first of all, let's, let's think about the change that came to this leper who was to be cleansed. It would not be too much to say that the one who was healed of his leprosy and cleansed according to the ritual described in chapter 14, that such a person got their life back. Right? We, we've seen this. They've been cut off from the fellowship of their nation, the fellowship of their family, the fellowship of the, the people of God, the believing community, and from the outward worship of God in the tabernacle, this, this is a big deal. How would you like it if you're cut off from your town, your family, your church, etc., etc., for some period of time, indefinite, until the time God in his mercy would heal you? Well might this situation be taken as an emblem for our lives apart from Christ. Apart from Christ, we're without hope and without God in the world, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, as we find in Ephesians 2. We saw last time that these leprous infections described here are typologically representative of sin. As Isaiah 1 makes the connection for us, where will you be stricken again as you continue in your rebellion? The whole head is sick and the whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is nothing sound in it, only bruises, welts, and raw wounds, not pressed out or bandaged nor softened with oil. David compared his sinful condition, Psalm 38, 5 through 7, and spoke of it this way. He said, My wounds grow foul and fester because of my folly. 
I am bent over and greatly bowed down. I go mourning all day long, for my loins are filled with burning, and there is no soundness in my flesh. Now, we don't know for sure whether David was actually suffering some condition here in Leviticus 13 and 14 because of his folly, or whether David just picked up on this language of being stricken and applied it to the condition of his soul because of his folly. And so why should we not see then, seeing that these diseases were typological of sin, why should we not see the separation that resulted from these illnesses as also typological of the separation from God and from people, which is brought about because of sin? And why should we not also see the restoration that comes when one is cleansed from such an infection as typological of the cleansing that comes to us when we are cleansed from our sins by the blood of Christ. Our cleansing by Christ is indeed foreshadowed in the cleansing of these who were healed here. For when we are cleansed, we are brought from a state of being alienated from God into a state of fellowship with God. We are brought from a state of being alienated from the people of God into Fellowship with the people of God. Now let's, let's notice a few things here about the one who was brought from being unclean to being clean. Such a person had been healed evidently by God. This healing was recognized by a priest. A sacrifice was made and he was sprinkled clean by water and blood. He was pronounced clean. He washed his clothes and bathed. He would be anointed with oil and by means of the sacrifice... From the priest, there would be an atonement for him. And even so it is with us in Christ. Those who are born again are described as healed. By his wounds you have been healed. Isaiah 53, 5, 1 Peter 2, 24. In the words of Hebrews 10, 22, we draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. In the language of Titus 3, 5, and 6, we receive the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Our filthy rags are, are taken away from us, and we are clothed with Christ, as we find in Galatians three twenty seven, that all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. And now, as believers, as we find in Romans 13, 14, we put on the Lord Jesus Christ. We make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Our high priest has made atonement for us, and he has pronounced us clean. Isn't that what our justification is? That we are pronounced to be righteous, reckoned righteous by God, declared so by him. And just as the priest recognized the healing which had been uh, brought about by God, even so, now the church recognizes those who are healed by God from their sins. And this, this ties in with our, with our second application point, the, seeing the fact that, that this cleansing was, was recognized by the priest. And so we, as the church, recognize when God has cleansed others. Obviously, we can't be permitted to see hearts but we, in charity, bring into formal fellowship with the church those who have repented and believed, those who have been cleansed. We bring them into our fellowship as brothers and sisters in the Lord. Calvin put it this way, I think, helpfully. 
He said, The office of cleansing is imposed on the priest, yet he is at the same time forbidden to cleanse any except those who were already pure and clean. In this, on the one hand, God claims for himself the honor of the cure, lest men should assume it, and also establishes the discipline which he would have to reign in his church. To make the matter clearer, it belongs to God only to forgive sins. What then remains to man except to be witness and herald of the grace which he offers? God's minister can therefore absolve none whom God has not absolved. In some, absolution is not in the power or will of man. The minister only sustains an inferior part to endorse God's judgment, or rather, to proclaim God's sentence. And you can see what Calvin is, is getting at there, that it's, it's not the job of the church to cleanse or to forgive sins. Pharisees were wrong about many things, but they were absolutely right to say, who but God alone can forgive sins? But what the church can do and does is to pronounce the remission of sins which God has granted to those who repent and believe, and also to proclaim to the impenitent that they are still unclean, that those who are left unbelieving and in their sins, the wrath of God abides on them. And so the authority in the church is, in these matters, much like the authority of the priests in the Old Testament, it was, it was not absolute. It was inferior. It was relative and declarative. We state the facts as they are, but God is the one who forgives. We are simply seeking to reflect God's verdict when we bring men and women into church membership and acknowledge them as brothers and sisters that they have indeed been cleansed. And thirdly, let's learn from this that the troubles that we face should drive us to our high priest. And this is in connection with the, the leprosy on the houses. As we've seen already in verse 34, the Lord himself takes direct authority and responsibility for, for putting this mark of leprosy on the houses of these people. And this seems likely to have been done perhaps as a warning in some cases, perhaps as a punishment. And it's evident as we, as we see here in the chapter that there are different degrees to which this mark of leprosy in the house could be a problem. It could be that all they had to do is simply remove some stones and plaster, patch it up after quarantine if it's not spreading. You're good to go. Go through the ritual for cleansing and move back in. Or it could be that you've got this malignant mark that's spreading, and again, you summon the demolition team, tear down the house, cart the stones outside the city to an unclean place. And obviously, we have to be careful here. Sometime when, uh, sometimes when our persons or our possessions or property is afflicted or we suffer in some way, it is to function as judgment or at least as a warning to the person upon whom this affliction comes. Just, for example, consider the, uh, the penalties for disobedience that are listed in Leviticus 26, 21 and 22, where we read, If then you act with hostility against me and are unwilling to obey me, I will increase the plague on you seven times according to your sins. I will let loose among, the, among you the beasts of the field, which will bereave you of your children and destroy your cattle and reduce your number so that your roads lie deserted. And so sometimes when we suffer affliction, sickness, loss of property, sometimes this is the hand of God because of our sins, the hand of God summoning us to repent. 
But though this certainly could be so, I always have to be careful because godly people have been afflicted for no particular fault of their own. Job, of course, is the classic example of this, or even more strikingly, the Lord Jesus Christ, man of sorrows. He did nothing wrong. Now, you might be asking, where, where are we going with, with all of this? Well, when bad things happen to our persons or to our property, to our family, and so forth, we would always do well to be open to a little self-examination and course correction if need be. Be willing to ask the question, is there anything that I've been contemplating, anything that I've been engaging in, on account of which the Lord might be warning me or disciplining me right now? We need to at least be willing to ask the question and look at our hearts and lives. If we're not willing to ask the question, that speaks to our arrogance more than, more than anything else. If we're not willing to at least ask the question and engage in some, as much as we can, objective self-reflection, that speaks to a problem from the get-go. But if we're willing to, to ask the question and look at our hearts and lives, and if the answer comes back, yes, Yes, there is something I've been contemplating. Yes, there is something in which I've been engaging that I need to, uh, to repent of. Then we confess it and we repent of it and move forward in our walk with the Lord. And we can rejoice that we can be cleansed by Christ, whatever the sin is. And if we search our hearts and the answer is no, not at least as far as I can tell, then Praise God, at least you were willing to search your heart. Now the difficulty might be simply trusting God, given the affliction that has befallen you. And whether the answer is yes or no, we need to remember that our possessions and our lives here below are wonderful gifts of God and can and should be used for His glory, His honor, His service, and His praise, but it's all transitory. Our lives here, we're not going to live forever. Our possessions here, they're going to fade. They're going to pass away. The earth in its present form is, is fading away. Our hope must never be here in this world. Our true home must never be here. And so the point that I'm going for is that the losses and the sufferings that we meet with along the way are to remind us that this world is under a curse. It's cursed because of sin. The sufferings and trials that we encounter should remind us that the wages of sin is death, eternal destruction. And if you and I would avoid being destroyed forever in an unclean place, away from the presence of the Lord and from his people, then we must be cleansed. And praise to God, we have a priest who can and does cleanse. And so, just as I said a few weeks ago when we were looking at chapter 13, present yourself to the priest. Take that away from tonight, if nothing else. Present yourself to the priest, because... Just like those, those lepers in Matthew chapter 8, when, when they came to him, the, the one said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus said, I am willing, be cleansed. So look to Christ, trust in him, because he cleanses not just from leprosy, but from things that are much more malignant and damning than that. Praise be to God that Jesus cleanses. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that indeed... Jesus is a greater priest than these of old who could simply diagnose the ill but were powerless to cure. Father, we praise you that Jesus has the cure, that he cleanses, not merely did he cleanse from disease, but even more importantly from the disease of our souls, our sinfulness. So Lord, we pray that we would all go to him, that we would 
present ourselves to him, to be cleansed. We pray that you give us tender hearts as we walk through this world. Let us always be willing to, uh, to humbly consider our lives before you. Give us hearts that are always quick to repent, always quick to confess our faults to you. And we praise you uh, for Christ and his uh, continuous cleansing of our souls. We ask your blessing and your help upon us. In Jesus' name, amen.